Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining us online here at Infuse Church. We're so glad to have you. Today, we're talking about what is sacred. For most of us, when we think sacred, we think sacred places, sacred ceremonies, sacred objects. But today, what we're going to learn that at least in Christianity, at least in what Jesus taught us, sacred looks completely different. So we hope you stick around to find out more. All right, well, hey, good morning, uh, everyone. Um, today um, is an exciting day because uh, for those of you who grew up in religious families, we're going to start off talking about you. Uh, yeah, yeah, which is still a, a good portion of you. Um, and this, this uh, what we're going to start talking about is not exclusive to Christianity um, in any way, um, because when you grew up in a religious household, there's a pretty good chance that too often you um, or your parents or the people who went to your church, or your temple, or your mosque, loved their religion more than they loved the people for whom the religion was given. Got that? They loved their religion more than the people whom the religion was given. And we could break it into subcategories, too. We could, we could go so far as to say that they loved their doctrine, and a doctrine is just kind of a set of beliefs um, or distinctives that make a certain denomination or group kind of unique, that they loved their doctrine more than they loved the people for whom that religion or those doctrines were given. We can break it down a little further. We could say that they, some of the people whom you went to church with, maybe, or, or your family was friends with, they love their tradition more than the people for whom the tradition was given to. That maybe you heard this growing up, this is the way we've always done it. Or no, we won't consider changing. And in some cases, and of course this would never happen here at Infused, they loved their church more than they loved the people for whom that church was started for. And it kind of shows up in a lot of different ways, but essentially, suffice it to say, it was more like we don't want to tarnish our church's reputation to have a relationship with you or maybe a friend of yours or someone that you saw come into church one day and never came back again. And there was a part of you that knew the reason that they didn't is because nobody loved them when they came. Just a simple hello, or good to see you. I know uh, in the short time that I have been pastoring, I have watched many a person show reverence to a religious building, a sacred space, more than they have the people whom that sacred space was built to house. And you've experienced this, especially if you've walked into a really grand, beautiful, ornate structure. Uh, I know recently I was in New York, and uh, we were walking along, and uh, lo and behold, there was this giant cathedral, and so I was like, well, as any good pastor should, I should probably go in, I guess. Um, I don't know if that's a thing, but I went in, and what is the first thing you do when you walk in? You don't say anything. And don't really know why either, right? I mean, like, what's going to go wrong? The whole thing's not going to come crashing down because you're a little louder, but because you have to show reverence to this sacred space that you're in. And people, it's so interesting to watch them. They will approach that place with awe and reverence that they won't show to their neighbor. 
And perhaps in some traditions or in some cultures or in some religions, people will actually wash or cleanse themselves before they go into their sacred place in preparation for whatever they're going to do in their religion. And I think it's kind of interesting because some of us, we may not even wash before we go hang out with our friends. Some of us should. At least put on deodorant. I have watched and personally experienced complete strangers who treat me, a religious leader, a sacred person, better than they would treat another stranger. Simply because of a title. Why? Because they have more love, respect, and reverence for a religion than for the people for whom the religion was given. And it's kind of a funny thing, I think. It's as if they're saying, and you've seen this again growing up, I'm sure, because I know I did if you grew up in a religious environment, it was as if they were saying through body language or their verbiage or whatever it was, it was as if they were telling these other people, this is sacred, this place is sacred, this, this object is sacred, these people are sacred, this person is sacred, and you're not sacred. These chairs are sacred, so only please sit if you are a sacred person. We treat the religious better than we treat the irreligious. Why? Because one at the root of it, in our minds and our hearts, is more sacred than the other. And that exclusivity could have been the reason that you left the church. Why you haven't been back in many years why you were reluctant to ever return to church, why you've been wondering the last few weeks, why am I going to church again? Where did this happen? Or maybe for some of you, you're watching online, and you find yourself watching and listening, and, and it's really good, and it's really interesting, you're really not sure why you're watching again, because all of those religious people and all those sacred people made you feel like you weren't sacred enough to be a part of their sacred things. You walked away. We walked away at some point. Because we felt like the people took a back row to the religion that was started for those people. And I think it's even more incredible that there is an innate part of all of us that know that when we see that, when we do that, it's not right. And I think today, though, I hope, we may walk away walk out of here knowing why a little bit better. So with that, um, today we are um, wrapping up our series, um, season two. Um, season one of this series, this long series we've been doing all summer called 15. Season one, we laid the groundwork um, for who is Jesus and, and uh, what was he about and what was he after in our lives. And then uh, the, in, um, next week, we're going to wrap up this series um, with um, a three-part season finale um, of 15, um, which uh, I think would be really insightful for many of us and, and helpful in how do we take what we've got in the last few weeks and put it practically into our lives. Um, but today we wrap up this series, season two, asking or continuing to ask the question, who is Jesus? Um, and uh, today we're going to get like another dot in kind of this um, 
uh, picture, if you will, of who Jesus is. And, and I use dot figuratively because if you take all the things we've learned over the last few weeks and you put them onto a piece of paper, they create a couple of dots. And as soon as you start connecting those dots, as soon as you get more of those dots, you begin to get a fuller picture of who Jesus is. And I think um, today, um, after we've been talking about things like mercy and God and inclusion and love, um, that Jesus um, is going to take things to the next level and prepare us for what's coming in season three and prepare us for what we need to understand about what's going to happen at the end of the story. And the other thing that I think is really important, um, and one of the dots that we haven't directly talked about, but if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you've seen it happen. Jesus had this incredible knack of walking into situations, engaging with topics, and completely redefining what his audience thought those topics were really about. And I think for many of us, introducing topics and engaging with topics that rethink um, force us to redefine what we thought about them, especially based on how we were raised. Now today, I'm going to um, share two stories in which Jesus is going to redefine this very exciting idea, concept, of what is sacred. And I know what you're all thinking. You're so glad we're talking about this, right? Because every day you wake up and you're just hoping one day Pastor Taylor will talk about what is sacred, don't you? Before you go to work, you're like, what is sacred? Nope, nobody? Okay, fantastic. Well, I'm glad you're here then because that's what we're going to do. So I hope it is exciting to you. Um, and uh, <laughs> I really think this is important for a number of reasons. Um, but... Um, well, the first story, before we get there, the first story that we're going to talk about is a story we talked about a, almost a year ago to the day in a series called Rooted, and I think it's still available online, so you can go check it out if you want. Um, so the first story may be a bit familiar to you, um, but it is really, really important. And then the second story you've probably um, either never heard of, and if you did, you probably forgot about it. And it's a very short little snip of Scripture um, that is almost too hard to believe. In fact, I think for most of us, we're either going to leave here in one, in awe, or two, a little skeptical and a little uncomfortable, especially because in a Western culture, we're kind of just trained to ask questions and be cynics and critics. But if what I'm going to share with you today is true, it almost entirely um, solidifies who Jesus claims to be. And I think we'll redefine what we consider and treat as sacred. Now, um, in the series, we, we've um, bumped up against a lot of interactions between Jesus and um, the religious leaders. So if you've been with us in this series, you know that this is not a new occurrence. Jesus would get in arguments and disagreements with the religious leaders, not because of who they were per se, so much as what they did, specifically how they treated other people. And just like I mentioned earlier, um, these were religious people who loved their religion more than the people for whom the religion was given. And I think sometimes, even more, they love their religion than the God for whom that gave them that religion. And that's not okay. 
And this heart issue, per se, came to a point one day when Jesus um, was walking along. In fact, Jesus um, was walking through um, grain fields on the Sabbath. And we're reading um, from Matthew chapter 12. So if you've got your Bibles and you want to follow along, you can. Jesus, um, this interaction is coming to this point uh, in Matthew where Jesus is walking through grain fields. So, and you can imagine grain fields, essentially wheat fields, okay? And, and he's just walking through them. Everybody's kind of following behind him, his disciples. And then there's crowds. And then there's the religious leaders because the religious leaders at this point knew of Jesus because Jesus had gained so much notoriety and, and, and um, uh, a following that people, the religious leaders were like, we need to keep track of this guy and make sure um, we figure out who he is, and if he is not who he says he is, or um, if we can uh, discredit him in any way, we're going to do that. So he was walking in the grain fields on the Sabbath, okay? And this is actually a problem. In fact, this is where the problem began, because the Sabbath um, is one of God's laws, and the law comes um, uh, from the Ten Commandments, and, and that law, um, the Ten Commandments is ten of like 600-some laws. Um, they're just the famous ones that we remember. Um, and the, the law says that we should all, or the Jewish people, should remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Yeah, see, you did grow up in a religious household. Yeah, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now, I don't know about you, but when I grew up in church, I thought the Sabbath meant going to church on Sunday. Sabbath? Sunday. They both start with S's. Obviously, that, that means something, and so we're supposed to go to church on Sundays. That's what the Sabbath means. But that's not true at all, in fact. Sabbath is not a Sunday. It's a Saturday, and the Sabbath is a day of rest. You're not supposed to do anything. God actually told us in his law that we should be taking a day off, not like taking a day off and going on a trip. No, you just hang out. Just hang out. Maybe even spend it with God. Crazy idea. But anyway, so that's what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to do anything. I mean, that sounds like a great idea. I should take a Sabbath. We should all take a Sabbath more often. Anyways, his disciples, though, as Matthew goes on, his disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. In other words, in a technical way, they were having a little snack. Okay? And it is a very healthy snack, I would say. Unless you're gluten-free, then it's probably not a great snack. But for those of you who are not, this is a great snack. They're having a little snack on the way. But in a technical terms, they were also um, harvesting. And you're not supposed to harvest on the Sabbath. So, Matthew goes on, when the Pharisees, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Your followers are are, and, it, and it's not just that they're eating gluten, that's not unlawful at this point in society, um, maybe now, but um, <laughs> they're, they're harvesting, and they're not supposed to be harvesting, and so the religious leaders are having a complete fit, um, they're, they're making a big deal, they're trying to get the crowd's attention so they can kind of undermine Jesus, and, and by yelling at, at Jesus and saying, hey look, your disciples are breaking the law, your disciples are lawbreakers. I mean, we need to let people know. Go send some people back um, to, to the religious leaders back in Jerusalem. Let them know that Jesus is, and his disciples are lawbreakers. We got to make this a big deal. Post it on Instagram, hashtag no filter, okay? So they were like really passionate about this. This is a big deal. We want to undercut Jesus. And Jesus, as the master teacher, does what he always does and, and gets underneath their argument. 
And if you read the rest of Matthew chapter 12, you'll find that Jesus goes to them and say, and essentially says, hey, do you guys remember, religious leaders, do you guys remember King David? Okay, fa- very famous Jewish, Jewish guy, um, King David. And, um, and they would say, well, yeah, everybody knows King David. Everybody loves King David. And then he quotes to them a bit of scripture and he says, hey, do you remember that time that David and his followers were really, really hungry? And they didn't say anything. And he said, what did David do? And they thought about it. Perhaps a little begrudgingly said, well, they ate the sacred bread. They ate the sacred bread. Yeah. From the temple? Yeah, from the temple. Right. So King David, King David, whom you all love, ate bread, the sacred bread, when he was hungry. Now, do you consider him a lawbreaker? And of course, now they're just silent. Well, what are they going to say? Would you call King David a criminal? No, of course they wouldn't. Because what was the issue? The issue had nothing to do with the law. The issue was they just liked David and they didn't like Jesus. And then they tried to leverage their religion and their law to get what they really wanted. And he goes on. He's like, I'm not done yet. What about your priests? Do your priests work on Sunday mornings or Saturdays on the Sabbath? Do they, do they go to the temple and do priestly things? And of course, they're like, well, yeah, of course they go to the temple. Well, they're, are they breaking the law? And they're like, oh, no, no, of course they're not breaking the law. So Jesus has got them. Because Jesus wanted them to ask themselves the question, hey, do you think God loves his law more than he loves his people? That he would rather his people go hungry so that they could obey the law? Do do you think God loves your denomination or your church or your doctrine or your tradition more than he loves his own people? Because they did. But it's so backwards, isn't it? It's like saying that God created his law and then he created people so that the law would have someone to mess with. Doesn't make sense. It's like saying you're going to have kids so that someone could play with the toys. It's like saying you're going to get married so you have someone to give your grandmama's ring to. It's a terrible idea and completely backwards to how it should be. And that's what Jesus was trying to get at. This is at the heart of what we call, or maybe you've heard of legalism. And legalism is this. It prioritizes a view over a you. It prioritizes a view over a you. So much so that even if someone questions the view, especially in a Christian sense, Christians will dig their heels in and say, nope, this is the way it is, and they won't budge. They won't admit to being wrong. Why? Because they love their religion and their law and their tradition more than they love the people for whom it was given. And Jesus was like, no, 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 this is not how it works. Sabbath, the Sabbath, in fact, all the law, all the law was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's what he told in the same story in Mark. The Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. And then it gets really interesting. 
and he, and he kind of just quiets down maybe. I don't know, it's my imagination, what he does. He kind of leans in as if to say something profound, lowers his voice to kind of get their attention. Everybody just kind of leans in. What's Jesus going to say next? He says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. And that's what his audience did too. Complete silence. Stunned. The disciples are kind of sitting there like, is, is he serious? To compare yourself to the temple, the sacred temple in Jerusalem, the holy of holy, where God himself resides, to insinuate that there is something or you are greater than the temple. Jesus, are you off your rocker? Okay, number one, Jesus, just a couple little history lessons here for you. In fact, I got a couple for you today. Number one, Jesus, have you seen the temple? This is the temple. This is fairly impressive for being built 2,000 plus years ago just going to put that out there. In fact, Jesus, if you remember, I don't, you probably don't because you were just born, but that crazy King Herod, you remember that guy, the guy who, who went to Bethlehem and killed all the small boys in, in, in Bethlehem because he wanted to get at you, Jesus, that guy, okay, a few years earlier, before that time, before you were born, um, he had this brilliant idea um, that he would go to the Jewish people and say, hey, Jews, do you want me to rebuild your temple for you? Of course, they were like, yeah, we would love that absolutely and so he did that of course for them not at all for himself because he wasn't a tyrannical power hungry maniac who if his kids even like threatened him in any way he'd just kill his children he wasn't crazy at all okay he built this temple for the Jewish people so that he would be known from that point forward he was Herod the builder or Herod the great and so he built this incredible temple I mean in some places these walls are a hundred foot thick walls 2,000 years ago. And here's a closer view of the actual temple itself. I mean, it is incredible. Some of these, um, what, what actually architecturally makes this so incredible is some of these blocks were 100 by uh, 16 by 44 foot uh, uh, wide, long, um, and, and some of them would weigh as, as much as 500 tons. 500 ton cut stone blocks moved from the quarry all the way to here and placed for this temple. I mean, at the time, this was like an architectural wonder of the world. This was an earthquake-prone area, and what Herod had done is he had built an unbreakable, unmovable temple in Jerusalem. This thing was going nowhere. So for Jesus, Jesus, for you to consider or to insinuate that you are greater than this. That's just crazy. Not to mention, if it wasn't insanity or craziness, it was certainly, most certainly, blasphemy, because again, this is where God lives. God's hanging out in here, and so for you to insinuate yourself as greater than the temple, you're insinuating that you are at the level of God. That's crazy, Jesus. I mean, literally, they thought God resided behind a curtain in the temple. Like, don't look behind the curtain, the man behind the curtain kind of thing, okay? That's literally where the presence of God resided. The other thing was, this was like the White House, in a way, because there were no kings, there was no 
Israel had its own king. There was a Roman-appointed king, but the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, were essentially like the, the political people, the political leaders of the nation of Israel at the time. So for Jesus to insinuate he was greater than that, he was saying he was greater than the nation itself. I mean, Jesus was just taking this to the next level. And at least, if that doesn't give you some sense of the significance, um, a few years after Jesus said this, in about 40 AD, there was this crazy interaction where the emperor at the time, um, this, this um, interesting looking fella on the next slide, um, I think I brought a picture. Yeah, this guy, his name is Caligula. He was Emperor Caligula. He's got a nice little hat going there. And uh, he wanted a giant statue of himself put in the temple courts in Jerusalem. Okay? Do you think that was going to upset a couple of the Jewish people? Yeah. He was pretty much picking a fight. So he orders a guy by the name of Petronius, who was the governor of the Syria at the time, to take two Roman legions, go down Jerusalem, make sure they build this temple of him right smack dab in the the middle of the temple, right in front of where God is supposed to reside, okay? And so Petronius goes down, lands on the beach, um, right um, on his way to Jerusalem, and guess what he finds? Not a hundred, not a thousand, but tens of thousands of Jewish peasants who were not there to fight who were there to literally give their lives. They said, we're not here to fight. You're just going to have to kill us if you want to get to Jerusalem to go put this statue up. And Petronius is like, I don't know what to do. So he tries to buy himself more time. So he goes more inland to Tiberias. And then he's hanging out there. And guess when he arrives at Tiberias, what he finds? He finds thousands more Jews who are willing to die so that he can't build this statue. In fact, the peasants end up stop, they stop working, they, they protest, and so the economy just completely collapses, and, and um, Petronius has no idea what to do. This is how significant to Jesus' Jewish audience, his, the religious leaders that he's talking to, this was the significance of the temple to them. It's hard for us to put that in our imaginations, but for them, this was everything. Petronius said, I can't move forward because the only way for me to get to Jerusalem is to commit genocide, and I'm not willing to do that. So he writes a letter to Caligula and says, I can't do it, um, and I'm willing to suffer the punishment for not accomplishing my mission, which is death. He was going to die because he was not willing to commit genocide. And a crazy turn of events, the Roman Senate um, uh, uh, conspired against Caligula, had him executed or assassinated, and there was a new emperor, and so the disaster was completely averted. But that's how important the temple was. So for Jesus to say he was greater was incredible. I mean, what is greater than the temple? What is greater than where we're supposed to go as Jewish people to connect with God? I mean, if the temple isn't great, then where do we go to connect with God? And Jesus would say, see, you got it all backwards. It's, it's not a what. What's greater is the temple is not a what, and it's not a where. It's a who. And you're looking at him. And he's looking at you. Because Jesus is trying to point out that he is the connecting point between us and the Father. 
And he is also greater than the temple in that way. He's who we go to, but he's also insinuating that we are more valuable than the temple, too. We are more valuable than what 10,000 Jewish peasants were willing to give up to save. And I would imagine his disciples are really confused and not sure how to proceed. Because it felt like to them that Jesus was taking a religious tradition that is sacred and turning it upside down. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not turning it upside down. I'm just turning it right side up. And it's difficult when things change, but Jesus was saying, I promise you that I am and you are greater than the temple. One day as Jesus and his guys were leaving the temple um, after teaching and doing what Jesus did, some of his guys were, well, they were walking away and they turn around and they look up at the temple. And, and Luke tells us in chapter 21, it says, some of his disciples were remarking how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones, those massive, massive stones, and with gifts dedicated to God. Oh, there's the temple. Isn't it beautiful? It's so incredible. And they're talking amongst themselves. And Jesus overhears. And Jesus is going to respond. And I'm guessing Jesus takes on a really serious tone with what he's about to say. In fact, the next two sentences are exceptionally profound. In fact, a little startling, a little hard to comprehend. Jesus said, As for what you see here, the temple, the time will come when not one stone, gotta get this, not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And the Greek word here means exactly this. Literally taken from where it is and thrown down. As if to say those stones would be taken over to that edge, that big edge in front of the temple that you could see in that first picture, and just thrown down into the valley. Thrown off a cliff, practically. That's <laughs> just like... Jesus, I mean, not even an act of nature, not an earthquake can move the temple. It's sacred, Jesus. God is not going to let his temple get thrown down off a cliff. That's crazy. But it's not as crazy as you think. And if you go home after day's service and you open your study Bibles that I've been saying every week, and you go to Luke chapter 21 and you read through the whole chapter, it is incredible. Because Jesus, in great detail, says what's going to happen to the temple. He said, when the armies are surrounding Jerusalem, destruction is near. And it is going to be awful. Woe to those who are pregnant or have babies, or small children. Because it will be dreadful. Many people will die by the sword, and if they don't die, they will be sold into slavery or imprisoned. Jerusalem will be trampled, almost like in an imagery of a child running through a sandcastle, just completely destroying it. The temple will no longer exist and it's not an exaggeration, it's just truth. Because 
The reason you and I cannot go to Jerusalem today and walk into the temple that Jesus was standing at the base of and his disciples were talking about 2,000 years ago is because 40 years later, in about 70 AD, the Jews started fighting back against the Roman oppressors. And they had one major success against the Roman legion. And that gave them the confidence to essentially declare war. And so Rome sent her legions, a handful in fact. And the legions slowly made their way down from Rome, herding the Jews closer and closer to Jerusalem until they were right at her gates. And the Roman army, army, get this, the Roman army built a wall around Jerusalem, a walled city, so there was no way anyone could escape. And Passover was just beginning, the Jewish holiday of Passover. So thousands upon thousands of Jews were going to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And at first, um, the guy in charge um, at the time, um, his name was Titus. He would eventually become Emperor Titus said, no, 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 don't let the, the, the Jewish um, people in to celebrate Passover. And then he decided otherwise, and he said, no, 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 open the gates, let the Jewish people in to celebrate Passover. Why? Because they're going to run out of food faster, and this will end quicker. And so if you can imagine, the city's population swells for the celebration of Passover, and Titus lets them in. And inside, the Jews began to fight against one another. In fact, leaders were trying to take out leaders to figure out who was going to be leader and king of all um, Israel when they overthrew Rome, even though I don't know how you could be looking out the city of Rome with a wall around you thinking you were going to win. At one point, some people went and burned some of the food stores that Jerusalem had out of desperation, to, essentially to force God into helping them. This is how crazy it was inside. And eventually, the city fell. And Josephus, a Jewish historian, said that about 1.1 million, by his estimate, Jews were killed in this uprising. And about 75,000 of them were sold into slavery. And the most incredible thing happened. The Roman army went in and out of sheer frustration, took each and every single one of those stones, 40 years later, took each and every one of those stones and threw them off the Temple Mount and into the valley. And you can, today, go and not see a temple, but you can see the stones, I think I brought a picture, the stones at the base where the Roman army in 70 AD, destroy the temple just as Jesus said they would. Now, your religion professor and your atheist friend or your agnostic friend, and I know this because I was one, will come to you and say that this is not true. And the reason that this is not true, in other words, that Jesus' prophecy of the temple falling is not true, is because Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written after 70 AD, after the temple fell. So they just, when they were making this whole thing up, they just went in and added a couple lines about Jesus saying that the temple was going to fall, and then it did. And look, we proved it, it happened, there you go. That's what they're going to say. In fact, when I went and Google searched just this morning, and I, go, I typed into Google and I said, hey, when was the Gospel of Mark written? Second response. Okay? I didn't even click on the link. I just 
copy-pasted what was in the little description under Google. It says, because of the reference to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 CE, that was Mark chapter 13, we were looking at Luke's version of it, um, most scholars believe that the Gospel of Mark was written sometime during the war between Rome and the Jews, sometime between 66 and 74 AD. Because there is no way that Jesus could have predicted the fall of the temple. So there is no way the Gospel of Mark, for example, could have been written before then. And you know what? If you don't believe that God exists or Jesus is who he says he is, I get it. That makes sense. But let's be honest, just as many scholars put the Gospel of Mark sometimes as early as 40 AD in its writing. And I tell you this because in the culture we live in, Google is just a few seconds away. And I'm not trying to pull the, the shutters over your eyes, so to speak, but I want you to understand the perception, even though other scholars would say differently. But what I think is most incredible is nowhere in any gospel, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, that talks about the temple's destruction, nowhere in there does any of the gospel writers write in when they wrote it in 75 after this all happened. Nowhere did they write in and say, you know what, Jesus predicted it, and guess what? It happened, you should follow Jesus. They didn't write that in. Even though Matthew, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, he, all the time he's like, Isaiah said, Jesus did that, he was the fulfillment of prophecy. This, uh, this prophecy said this about the coming Messiah, Jesus fulfilled that prophecy, he's, a good, he's good to go, you can believe in him. All the time, all the gospel writers were constantly justifying why they believed the way they did and how Jesus was the fulfillment and fulfilled everything that they said he was going to fulfill. But when it comes to the temple, they didn't. Why? Because I believe that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were not written before the temple. And I believe that the temple fell because Jesus said it would fall, as if God was putting punctuation mark at the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the new covenant with his people to say, the old is no longer here, the new has begun. In fact, from 70 AD on, ancient Judaism never existed would never exist again. Rabbinic Judaism was born and is what we have in a lot of ways today, but ancient Judaism died in 70 AD because God was doing something new in the world. You see, the reason that I think Jesus shares all of this says all of this about a temple, goes into such detail about the destruction of the temple. Because I think he wanted to make a point that was of utmost importance to God, and it has to do with what is sacred. And it wasn't sacred people, religious people. And it wasn't sacred laws or books or buildings or places. Because those would never last. What Jesus was trying to get across to each and every one of us is that he is greater than the temple. And when we need something from God, we can go to him because from now on, we don't commune with God at the temple. We commune with God to Jesus. 
and that we are more important to God than any temple ever was or has been. Jesus was going to redefine his relationship with us, God's relationship with us, and he did so by redefining what we consider as sacred. And I think the Apostle Paul sums it up best when he writes about this in, in 1 Corinthians. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you and whom you have received from God? In other words, you are the temple. You are sacred. I know when I grew up in church, I just thought this meant that I should keep my body in, in good shape. You know, I should work out, take care of myself, eat well, because I was a temple. No, 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 no. Jesus would say. No, I want to actually reside in your heart. And I want you to remember that when you think you're going to a sacred place, when you think you're going to church on Sunday— I just want you to remember that this is a gym. I mean, we put pipe and drape up and we cover the floors and there's a stage here, but this is a gym. The most sacred thing in this room apart from Jesus is the person sitting next to you. The person whom you're married to. See, you marry sacred. You date sacred. You love sacred. You create sacred. You work for sacred. Your employees are sacred. They are temples of God, of the Holy Spirit. And I think what's really incredible about this is when you think, why would a God send a son down to earth. Because who he's sending it for, they are sacred to God. They were more sacred than the temple, that the temple was not enough. That God was going to completely rework his agreement, which we're going to talk about next week, his relationship with us. So I hope that you will consider, you will remember, you will accept that one, God sees you as the most sacred thing in the world. The most sacred ground you can stand on is ground next to your neighbor. And I would hope that you would remember that God looks at you and sees sacred. We're something so much more than any temple, incredible as it was, is. The last thing I want you to consider as we wrap up this series, as you think about this week, what is sacred, who is sacred, and how I treat that which is sacred. Do you treat it the same as the religious buildings and places and people that you grew up with, or do you treat it as God treats or sees sacred? The other thing I want you to ask yourself as we wrap up this series, or this season, is who is Jesus? Is Jesus just some historical figure? Some guy that lived? Or is Jesus a guy, a man, a God, 
a son of God, a savior of the world who died for our sins, died for the sins of sacred so that sacred could once again be with the Father, a guy who redefined love, who redefined mercy, who redefined our hearts, redefined relationships. Is that who Jesus is? Because if that's who Jesus is, I think it's worth following him. And that's his invitation to follow. To follow. Do you want to follow a man who predicted things that eventually came true? A man who taught us to love in a profound way? And a man who gave up his life for you? Or something else? Who's Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this, these are incredible stories. And it's hard for us to even imagine today what those moments in time that we just talked about today look like. So Lord, I just want to thank you that, first of all, centuries later, we get to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and remember what things were like. And we get an opportunity to have a lens into, a window into who you are or who Jesus is. That, Lord, for some of us, uh, even if we've been away from a church for a long time, or for some of us, maybe we walked away from church because people looked at us and they saw not someone who was sacred, but someone who was unworthy. And to them, it wasn't worth investing in time relationships with us, so much so that we walked away. Or perhaps for some of us, we haven't come back to church mainly because we don't want to be around those sacred, sacred people because we just feel not sacred enough. That wherever we are in that equation, Lord, wherever we are in our journeys of following you, maybe for some of us, we kind of feel a little more sacred than we should. But that, Lord, wherever we are in that, that you would help us through the stories like this, maybe encourage our hearts that tonight we're going to read Matthew chapter 20, or uh, Luke chapter 21, or we'll go back and read Matthew, and we'll see what was important to your son. We'll see through him what was important to you. And maybe we'll keep reading, and we'll see a man who died to love each and every one of us and to show us that we are sacred to our Heavenly Father. And remember that those people whom are around us, whom we may be even frustrated with, angry with, we may not trust, be skeptical of, even though we may even have good reason to be skeptical, that they are worthy in your eyes, that they are sacred in your eyes, that we would not forget it. And Lord, even though this is really, really hard to actually do in practice, you would encourage our hearts and our minds to do just that, to love them as you loved us. And for some of us to maybe consider looking at what it would be, to, what it would mean to follow you, not just believe in you, but to follow you, to follow a man who redefined sacred, a man who gave us insight into who God is and what's important to him.
Lord, we thank you for these stories. We thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for you. In your name I pray. Amen.